One, two, one, two. Postman, postman. Mickey microphone. It's bad boy, Mickey microphone. I'm the rollerblade princess. I'm concrete dog shit on a wet Wednesday. I'm Bin Laden's laptop. I'm a Frenchman's sweat patch. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Just testing out my microphone there. Testing out some of the sounds. S's, P's, T's, that sort of stuff. Because I got a new, I have a new computer. I've had this now for about a month. And I also have a brand new microphone. I used to use what's known as a condenser microphone. And now I've moved to a cardioid microphone. I can't, I'm not going to explain the difference between the two. But it's like, it's like going from Cocoa Pops to Muesli. Cocoa Pops. You, you can't have a problem with Cocoa Pops. They're amazing. They taste like chocolate. They make the milk taste like chocolate. They make noise inside in your head. But then you move on to Muesli. And you start off with Muesli. And you're like, what the fuck is this? The fuck is this? Am I a barn animal? Oh, raisins, yum. Is that bird seed? But then you get to, you start eating the Muesli. And you realise, oh, it's quite complex. And it keeps me fuller for longer. This is a much more sensible and better breakfast. So this, this cardioid microphone is Muesli. Takes time to get used to, but ultimately is better. And the condenser mic, that's fucking Cocoa Pops. I'm a big boy now. I don't need any Cocoa Pops. I want fucking Muesli. The last few podcasts were quite low in volume. And the reason is, I wasn't pushing this new mic as much as I should have. Because condenser mics, the old mic, are more sensitive. This is less sensitive. You can push it more. So hopefully this week will be a louder podcast for your ears. If you're a brand new listener, you are very welcome to this podcast. If you are a brand new listener, I always recommend go back and listen to some earlier episodes. You can even start from the start. I don't keep these podcasts in a sequential fashion. So you can you can pick any podcast you want and just listen. But I, I always say go listen to some previous podcasts. Regular listeners, you know the crack. So this week's podcast is going to be mental health focused. This is going to be a, a very practical mental health technique self-help podcast. That's what this is going to be. I'm going to speak about techniques that I've had to use over the past few months to really quickly respond to mental health issues I've been having. It's going to be very therapeutic for me to speak about it and I reckon it'll be helpful to you as well. Before I get into that, first thing I wanted to talk about was Cheers, the TV show Cheers, right? Because I I noticed, why was I thinking about Cheers? I'll tell you why, I did something utterly ridiculous about a month ago. So sometimes on this podcast, during the Ocarina pause, I read out advertisements for a, a streaming service, okay? And... I like doing it. I like doing that because I'm recommending TV shows. That's something I'd be doing anyway, even if it wasn't an advert. But how it works is the streaming service will send me a list of TV shows or films that they are showing on the service. I look through the list and I pick out what I would like to recommend to ye. So about a month ago, they gave me this list. Here, here's what we have this month. And then I pick out Cheers. The sitcom from the 1980s with Ted dancing in it. Cheers. Which I do enjoy. I love Cheers. It has a lovely warm feeling to it. So I sent them back a big advert for Cheers. Talking all about why I think it's good and all of this. 
And then they get back to me and they go, why the fuck did you do an advert for Cheers? What, what like, we gave you a full list of TV shows and stuff and why Cheers? It was... Cheers wasn't even on the list. Why are you talking about Cheers? And then I realise, yeah, they didn't have Cheers on the streaming service. The person who'd sent me the email of the list of TV shows had signed off the email with the word Cheers, which I then saw as the TV programme Cheers, and then created an unnecessary imaginary advert for Cheers. So then I went back and redid it and picked out something else. But I had Cheers on the brand then and I was really disappointed that they didn't have Cheers on the streaming service. I was like, fuck, I thought you were going to have Cheers. I really wanted to watch that again. So I ended up illegally downloading Cheers and re-watching some of it for that, that lovely nostalgic feeling that it has. So Cheers, it's an American sitcom and it's set in a bar and that's it. And it never leaves the bar. And it's just about these characters drink and work in a bar okay if you're not familiar with Cheers the the bits in the Simpsons where they're at Moe's Tavern that's a play upon Cheers Ted Danson is in Cheers it was his first big role he's the bartender Woody Harrelson is in it as a 24 year old as an aside here's an interesting Woody Harrelson fact Woody Harrelson's father um was like a high-profile hitman. He was in the highest security prison in America and he was a suspect for murdering President Kennedy. But I'm watching Cheers mainly for nostalgia. I was too young to appreciate Cheers. I would have been like a baby when Cheers was on TV uh, and a young child. But I just always associate it with my entire family would sit down and watch this thing on TV and the fireplace might be on and I'd be as a little toddler sitting down playing with my Lego or whatever and my whole family were watching this thing and laughing and that felt good so when I watch Cheers it gives me a little bit of that feeling that's safe nostalgia is about safety you know you're always when you feel nostalgia you're nostalgic for something that reminds you of the safety of childhood like I'm not nostalgic for shit from my 20s If I see shit from my 20s, it feels terrifying. Just reminds me that I'm getting old. But when I see shit from my childhood, it brings me back to that safe, lovely childhood feeling. But in Cheers, there's these two characters called Cliff and Norm. And they sit at the bar and they're customers and they drink and they're always there and they sit at the same stool. And they're not important characters. They're quite one-dimensional, you know? They're just there as an aside And they're to be laughed at. The joke is always at them, at their expense. They're pathetic. Norm and Cliff, their characters are pathetic, washed up old men. And the purpose it serves is like, they're they're tragic. They're the tragedy in the comedy. You never want to turn into these men. And I remember being a little kid. And seeing like my siblings, my, my fucking, seeing my dad laughing at him because my dad would have known lads like that in the bar. And it's like, you don't want to end up as these men. They've, they're in unhappy marriages. They don't like their jobs. They're drinking too much. Everything is terrible. They're tragic figures who you never want to turn into. These old men. 
And I'd kind of grown up with that. And then as I'm re-watching Cheers, kind of looking at him going, wonder what fucking age they are. And then I look it up and they're, they're 35 and 33 respectively. And that was terrifying. That was a terrifying thing to learn. They're 35 and 33 respectively and are comfortably portraying the role of washed up old man where everything they're fucked it's gone too far they're too old and in the 1980s that was 35 that was the age and then there's another character in Cheers called Fraser, Fraser Crane who went on to the spin-off Fraser, the fucking TV series that you might know that came from Cheers that character Fraser, he was a real posh American successful psychiatrist and he was fucking 27 and it really really struck me it struck me once again it had me thinking about society's attitude towards age and how that's changed massively in in my fucking lifetime you know in the 1980s and early 90s it was perfectly acceptable to portray two men who are 35 and 33 as being past it they're married they have a career they have a house and they fucked it all up and there's no second chances because they're too old and this was normal but today 35 and 33 year old someone who's 35 and 33 the media are referring to that age group as young people back then it was middle age but if you look at the media reports in Ireland recently when they speak about home ownership and they're talking about young people, they're talking about people who are 33 and 35 and comfortably referring to these people as young. And it highlights how age really is a construct as such, or our perception of what age means is a bit of a construct. In the same way that in the 1950s, teenagers just became this thing there was no such thing as teenagers before the 1950s you were a child and then at about 13 you went to work and you became an adult and that was it and then because of capitalism in the 50s all of a sudden you had this new group of people between the ages of 13 and 18 and they had this new phase called teenage and then you became an adult and society opened up this space you know this was the emergence of like the teenager was birthed I'd say around when Elvis came out when when popular music became a marketable thing in the late 50s and 60s this was for teenagers this was this new phase where human beings between the ages of 13 and 18 get to explore who they are a little bit and society chills the fuck out and says alright you get to be moody you get to be You get to explore emotions. You get to have more space now to find out who you are before we call you an adult. But in the 1920s, it's like, 13, you're an adult now. Go do whatever job your parents were doing and get into the workforce. But now, because of the economy, people in their 20s, they're not getting established careers. They might be working as freelancers or interns. Like, no one's really secure in a career in their 20s or early 30s. Anyone who is, they're the exception. House prices, 
and the rental market means that no one's getting a fucking house and then the financial stress of not having a career in your 20s or early 30s and not able to own a house means that a lot of people aren't getting married or starting families because some people are living with their parents so society has had to collectively agree now that people who are 35 are young people and it's just a bit mad and I've spoken about this before on a podcast I've, I've, I've gone into this in great depth in a podcast called Rectum Pen Pals which I recommend you listen to if you haven't heard it where I speak about all of this the change in shape of what adulthood is and I take it back to the Tom Hanks film Big from the 1980s because the thing is with the Tom Hanks film Big what's Big about? Here's a child and he becomes 30 but he's a 30 year old who acts like a child he plays with bouncy castles and beanbags isn't that hilarious and absurd? And now that's not absurd at all because it's perfectly acceptable and perfectly normal for someone in their 30s to play video games and to jump around the place on a beanbag or have a bouncy castle. These are all perfectly normal things now. And to dress like a child, to dress like a seven-year-old. And I think that's a good thing because adulthood, like that 1980s concept of adulthood, that's just a type of performed solemnity. So I think it's a good thing that people in their 30s now are allowed to engage in play. That's really healthy, but not at the expense of economic security. That's unhealthy. I don't like that we're in delayed childhood. We're in delayed teenage years, essentially, if you're in your 30s. So then I posted on social media a photograph of Norman Cliff from Cheers. And I said, Norman Cliff, two washed up old men who were actually 35 and 33 and people lost their shit. People couldn't handle it. They were not ready for that. It was too, that was too raw. But I say, fuck it, let's roll with it. Because people were self-flagellating. They were looking at Norm and Cliff and going, oh my God, these, these are washed up middle-aged men and they're the same age as me. And it's like, no, fuck that. If you don't have the trappings, if you don't have access to what middle-age means, and middle-age means foundation and security, that's what that means. Married, mortgage, pension, kids that are in their teens. If society and the economy is denying people in their 30s access to that, then you don't have to call yourself middle-aged. Then you don't have to put that extra level of unfair pressure on yourself. I'm in my mid-30s. I don't like that I'm technically considered a middle-aged man. Maybe if it was the 90s and my environment reflected back to me that me and all my peers were middle-aged, maybe I'd be grand with it then. Like I'd probably have, I'd probably have, if it was the 90s, I'd probably have kids who were doing their junior cert now instead of not having any kids because the fucking recession took 10 years off me. But now I say, fuck it. If, if, if the economy says, no, you, you are definitely not middle-aged, you're actually where people in their 20s were 20 years ago, then say, fuck it. Stay, be comfortable embracing being a young person. Let's not, let's not evaluate ourselves against standard, standards that were relevant when we were children. Let's not evaluate ourselves against that because the recession took 10 years off everyone 
And the recession also created the current gap of inequality that we're seeing right now. There's a lot of chat in the Irish media the past month about vulture funds. And a vulture fund is a giant pile of faceless, faceless cash. It's a giant, giant lump of money owned by a fund. And these vulture funds are buying massive swathes of property. They're like buying like 26 houses. And these houses are supposed to go onto the market for people to, to buy as homes. But instead, a giant pile of cash, no one knows who owns it, is buying 26 houses to rent them out at extortionate prices for people. And if you look at how that happens, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, that really, really posh English politician, really, really posh fella, his father wrote a book in the 80s called Blood in the Streets, which it's a book about how the ultra-rich can benefit from recessions. Recessions are brilliant if you're really, really wealthy. They're shit if you're not. When a recession happens and you're poor or in the middle, you lose your job, you lose your house. If you're really, really wealthy, then you have the money to buy the house that someone lost at a, at a lower price. And that's what's happening now in Ireland with these vulture funds. So, when the recession hit in 2008, loads of people lost property, couldn't pay their mortgages. So you have all these mortgages that aren't getting paid, which means the banks aren't getting the money back from the loans that they gave out that, you sh- that they shouldn't have given out in the first place. So what did the government do around 2011-2012? The government bought all these mortgages, okay, under a thing called NAMA. So then the government was left with all this property that it owned. And now who's buying it? From the government at a reduced rate. Vulture funds. So what you have there over the course of about 15 years is a gigantic transfer of wealth which creates inequality and then you have people in their 20s and 30s working not to attain the trappings of middle age but working to pay extortionate rents that exist because the vulture funds own all the property. So fuck them with their middle age shit. I'm getting a tattoo and playing video games. Um, Another thing a lot of people are asking me I got asked this a lot this week, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna address it. A lot of people are asking me to talk about UFOs, right? So, if you've been looking at the news cycle for the past year, you'll notice that the U.S. government, very very strange, very odd, the U.S. government has started acknowledging that they have footage of UFOs, and they have released the U.S. government have released, like. US military footage of UFOs aircraft videos of aircraft that are flying in ways that don't look like any plane that we know on this earth and also the US government said we have footage of planes that appear to be not of this earth and this is the thing that's happening right now in the media the US government are saying there are UFOs and we have videos of it so people are asking me what's my do I have a hot take around this I do have a hot take around this. Um, so traditionally, UFO sightings have existed for the since the Cold War, right? People were saying, "I see airplanes and I see craft in the sky that I don't know what they are, and I think it's aliens. I'm not sure." And the U.S. government is covering all this up, and this is a narrative that's existed. 
since the 1950s in America. Why was the US government covering it up? Because most likely the UFOs that people saw were secret US military airplanes and they're trying to hide the technology from the Russians. So there was a reason for them to cover it up. And there was also an, an incentivization for US intelligence like the CIA to promote the idea that they're alien spacecraft. Because when people are worried about aliens, then they're not, they weren't actually looking at what the aircraft really is, which was things like stealth bombers or drone technology. So why now is the US government, the fucking US government saying we have footage of UFOs? We don't know what they are. Is it Russia? Is it China? Is it aliens? We don't know, but we're telling you that we have footage of UFOs. Why is the US government doing this? Like, it doesn't make sense because the whole thing with the US government is we're the biggest military power in the world and nobody can beat us and we have utter dominance. We dominate everyone in the world militarily. So why would the US government say there's fucking craft out there, lads, and they appear to be moving in ways that our craft can't? Because what the US government would admit there is that we're insecure. We do not have this military security because there's fucking aliens flying around the gaff or whatever. I think the US government is saying that they have footage of UFOs to tackle domestic terrorism. We all saw it with the storming of the Capitol when the Capitol building was stormed there uh, around Joe Biden's inauguration a few months back. Conspiracy theories in America are no longer a fun thing that people are interested in. Conspiracy theories in America are really, really dangerous right now. And groups that believe in conspiracy theories, like QAnon, are also operating as domestic terrorists. There's a real threat in America of a group of people trying to overthrow the government. They fucking stormed the capital. And this is a real threat to America right now. But if you take it back to what I was saying there a few minutes ago about vulture funds and the Great Recession of 2008 and how we have this massive transfer of wealth and how the ultra-wealthy have benefited from the recession. This is a global thing. So we have increased inequality. And in America, working-class people, middle-class people, no longer have any sense of financial security. Unions are gone. Healthcare is gone. Industry is leaving. People aren't owning property. Things are financially tougher on the working class and the middle in America. And it's very complex. So people are turning to quite simple narratives such as conspiracy theories to try and explain why things seem so unfair. So it's it's very easy to believe that my life is shit because the world is controlled by a global elite who suck blood from babies and worship Satan which is genuinely what followers of a conspiracy called QAnon the type of people who stormed the US Capitol they really believe this they believe that the government the US government is controlled by people who eat babies people who believe that the coronavirus pandemic isn't a pandemic but is an engineered virus to create social compliance a conspiracy theory so these people do not trust the US government at all they do not trust the US government so I think by the US government saying we've got footage of UFOs what they're actually doing is they're trying to gain the trust of people who believe in conspiracy theories 
because it, it, if you're a conspiracy theory believer and then the US government is going, fucking aliens, lads. Yeah, aliens might be real. You see, now you can trust your government because you're thinking, holy fuck, they just admitted that UFOs are real. Wow, I thought they'd cover that up. Fucking hell, I think I better trust the government now. So I think, I think that's what that is. You know, they're, they're even going to, they're having a hearing in Congress in like two weeks about UFOs. So when I watch this, I'm going to see it as this is a giant propaganda. This is a PR event. And the goal of this is to reestablish trust with the growing threat of people who are domestic terrorists who believe in conspiracy theories, anti-government, batshit conspiracy theories. That's what I think it is. That's my hot take. And, and also, if you're thinking too, Jesus, is, it, is that not a big risk for the US government to make? Is it not really risky for the US government to let its citizens think that there's unidentified craft flying willy-nilly in the airspace? Is that not really risky? It would be in the 1960s when everyone is terrified of Russia managing to get planes into US airspace and bombing. People were terrified of the nuclear bomb in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Genuinely scared of US airspace being compromised. So in, the, in, in that period, if you said there might be UFOs, that could cause chaos because people need to know that their airspace is secure. But no one's scared of that anymore. No, There's no... They don't do nuclear bomb drills in schools anymore. People aren't... Like, there's some, there's some country, and I, th- I, think it's, I think it's Sweden, but, like, I think it's Sweden. In the 1960s, like, every new house in Sweden had to have a nuclear bunker built into it by law. That's how real this was. So people needed to really feel that their skies were safe. So you can't introduce UFOs into that. You can't introduce UFOs into that, because then the skies aren't safe. You have uncertainty. But you can do it now, because no one's worried about nuclear bombs. Warfare now between huge countries like the US, China and Russia warfare now is all it's all digital it's cyber attacks it's spying on people's data it's harvesting data of citizens it's unseen it's designed to create panic let's look at the past month in America in Texas I believe an oil pipeline was hacked by a group of Russian hackers and for about a week people in Texas couldn't buy any petrol because Russian hackers hacked a fucking the computers of an oil pipeline then this week in Ireland our health service the HSE's main computers were hacked by a group of Russian hackers and they say it's a Russian hacker criminal group I'd be very surprised I'd be very surprised if that group weren't in some way connected with Russian intelligence who were known to be fucking have a huge cyber warfare programme then you're thinking, what, what the fuck does Russia want with the HSE? What does Russia want with Ireland? It's not about Ireland, it's about the EU. Russia, Russia doesn't like the fact that the EU exists because it's too big, it's too unified. And this is why Russia had an interest in creating Brexit. So Russia wants loads of little Brexits and launching a huge cyber attack on someone's health service is a great way to create the type of uncertainty that makes people not want to be in the EU because you don't feel protected. Another thing that happened in the past two months, Europe is taking 5G towers down 
all over Europe if, if they're built by a, a Chinese company called Huawei. So all the Huawei 5G towers are being taken down because Huawei is a Chinese government company and they're just like, no, we can't allow a Chinese government company to have access to that much digital infrastructure in Europe. So that's the foreign threat now. That's the foreign threat, not fucking, not nuclear bombs. So within that environment, we're allowed to have a couple of UFOs and for it to be not terrifying. Turned into fucking Joe Rogan now. So I'm going to move it on. This was supposed to be a, a proactive mental health podcast. Well, that's what it's going to be. That's what it's going to be. So the past five months for me have been very... I've been really struggling with my mental health, I'll be honest. My mental health in the past five months has probably been the worst it's been in ten years. I found myself returning to feelings of anxiety, feelings of anxiety and panic and excessive worry um, to the point that it's, it's, it's not appropriate worry. It's, it's dipping into mental health territory, spending large parts of my day with my heart thumping waking up with night terrors being really jumpy anxious all day long my judgement and thinking completely clouded by anxiety jumping to worst case scenarios and generally being being quite unhappy I've, I've been unhappy for about 5 months I've been my happiness has been at about a a 5 a 5 out of 10 with occasional sixes. And usually my happiness is about eight. That's generally what my happiness level is because I try to live my day with meaning. So I haven't had any, I haven't had a panic attack. I haven't had an anxiety attack because I've been stave, I've been keeping them off. I've been keeping an actual panic attack at bay. But I've been existing in the territory where panic attacks occur and where depression occurs. And I haven't gotten the I haven't gotten panic attacks because I have a lot of tools. I have a lot of really robust tools that I can use so that I don't get to that point. Because that's what I want to avoid. I don't want to get to that point. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm having an anxiety attack. I don't think that's gonna happen. Why am I getting mental health issues since January? I don't have to dig too deep within myself. It's because of the pandemic. It's because of the pandemic. Alright? It's because it's going on a little bit too long for me. I, for the past year, said that every day I'm going to wake up and my only goal is to cope. And that's what I've been doing. But I've just been coping a bit too long. And the stress is a bit too much. And in particular, what was a real contributing factor for me was... When the case levels went up really high around January and they shut everything down. So not being able to go to the gym specifically has been a, has created real mental health issues for me. I can do without shops. I can do without pubs. I can do without socialising. I can do without holidays. All these really enjoyable things. It's disappointing that these things are gone, but I can cope without them. But not being able to exercise effectively... Um, that's really getting at my core needs right there. And what happened is, I mentioned this before, couldn't go to the gym, so I started running more. 
because I need to do these things for my mental health. That's 50% of my mental health is holistic. It's can I exercise? Can I get the endorphins into my brain from exercising? Can I have that sense of achievement? Can I have that sense of strength? The physical sense of being strong and having muscles and when you go to the gym and you're lifting weights and you have muscles, you've greater awareness of your body. You just you just feel fucking good. Your appetite changes. When you lift weights and you have pains in your muscles, your brain is shooting off endorphins all day. So it's a really crucial and essential part of my life. So I was running more and more, which led to an injury in my ankle. So now I have an Achilles heel issue that I'm trying to manage but I can't, I can't fully rest my heel because I need to run, so I'm kind of running on an injury. Which means I'm not running as good as I used to. I'm running at a really shitty pace and I'm not getting the endorphins that I'd usually get. So all of these things together have created an environment that meant that my capacity to cope has been greatly reduced. And because my capacity to cope has been reduced... I've been experiencing anxiety and depression. Now I'm not being Mr. Selfish about this. We're all going through a fucking pandemic. So I'm just speaking about my experience and I I reckon a load of ye are going, yeah, I'm experiencing that too. I have some weights at home that I lift and I do get a workout from those weights. It's not as good as the gym. It just simply isn't and it's a bit depressing. I'm also not one of these people who's going to end up doing a fucking Facebook live video in a car saying that the gyms need to open for mental health reasons. There's a lot of that stuff and it's kind of disingenuous. With the numbers we had in June and February, you just can't open the gyms. People are there with no masks, breathing heavily. You just can't have that. So I completely accept that. And I'm okay with not being able to go to the gym if it means someone's grandmother doesn't die. So I'm not going for that angle either. So I've been having, I've been in a state of crisis the past few months. Mental health crisis, that's what I call it. And what I'm going to speak about this week is I have a robust plan in place that I use when I'm in a state of crisis. A really simple, robust mental health plan that's rooted in psychology. I'm going to speak to you about that. Because, yes, it's been deeply unpleasant. I've been very anxious and I've been very upset. But I'm still coping. I'm still waking up in the morning. I'm still preparing meals for myself. I'm still getting work done. I'm not having panic attacks. And I'm not experiencing depression to the point that it stops me functioning or looking after myself. That hasn't happened. And the reason it hasn't happened is because of my plan that I use, my tools. If you've been listening to the podcast since January, and you might be thinking, Jesus blind boy, why didn't you say this earlier? Why didn't you say this on the podcast in January, February? Well, because I, 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 it didn't feel responsible. I wouldn't, it wouldn't feel very responsible to speak about it while I was in a sense of crisis. That wouldn't be responsible. I touched upon mental health, but I didn't feel like disclosing how bad I was, if you get me. Because when I'm in that state, I'm not thinking rationally. And the reason I'm telling you now is the past week in particular, I've been happy. The past, I've been up around a six because I have a sense of hope. The weather is better. The gyms are opening on June 7th. Things are looking up. Vaccinations. Um, 
the past week, I also, I haven't been waking up with terror. I, I was waking up in the morning with it, my heart thumping and terror and fear. I don't have that now. I have a bit more hope. So because of that, I feel that I can speak about this with a bit of responsibility. In a way that I'm not projecting my shit onto ye. Um, also what I did, and you'll notice this from, because I've been chatting about it. I, I completely reevaluated my relationship with with alcohol in particular. Since January I've had I've drank maybe twice and January is is that nearly six months away? It's it's f- five and a half months ago. I've only drank twice because I just knew, right, okay, anxiety is bad, bit of depression. Alcohol needs to get the fuck out of my life. I'll return to that when I when I feel happy. But alcohol was making me feel upset. And then with the hangover, getting two-day hangovers, that really exacerbates any depression or anxiety. So I said, fuck that. Bye-bye, drink. We can we can be friends again when I when I'm when I'm ready for you. Right now, no fucking way. I also laid off social media. Twitter in particular was making me absolutely miserable um, because it's it's a theatre of misery. So I made I made really uh, definite plans. I got Twitter off my phone and now I don't really use Twitter. I Someone else monitors it for me and I just post. I have to make sure I post on Twitter because it's my job. So I post but I get the fuck off it and I don't check anything on Twitter. And that's been amazing. It's freed up a lot of free time. And it's taken a lot of anxiety out of my life. Because Twitter's a video game. And like any video game, it's similar to addiction. Or or to gambling. It can be addictive. You're getting dopamine hits. From likes and retweets. And that's unhealthy. Especially when getting likes and retweets on Twitter. The more you behave like a dickhead, the more likes you get on Twitter. That's really bad. The one thing I allowed myself is food. I've allowed myself to healthily self-medicate through food. Making sure that I'm making myself nice dinners. Alright? I'm not making the healthiest choice for dinner every day. I'm not thinking about portion sizes or calories. What I'm thinking about is I've got one thing to look forward to today. I'm going to make myself a lovely fucking dinner that tastes really nice and I'm going to enjoy it with some nice TV. And I'm glad I did that. Planning and preparing meals that were being made purely because they were going to be tasty. Doing that gave me a sense of meaning and purpose and reward and it in- it injected quite a good deal of happiness into my days. And I've probably put on about a half a stone, but who gives a fuck? I give a shit about that. If that becomes a problem, I'll just sort it when I get back to the gym. At a time when I don't need to self-medicate with food. Because that's what I'm doing. When I'm preparing nice meals for myself, I'm consciously saying there's an element of self-medication here. I'm I'm taking something that's external and I'm I'm using this to quell an internal disquiet. And that can be okay if you do it with a sense of responsibility. If it was drink, fuck that. Very, very bad. But 
roast potatoes on a Tuesday, absolutely fine. Also, what was a massive help was meditating daily. I got back to meditating at least once a day, just for 10 minutes, a mindfulness meditation, sometimes twice a day. Meditating. When you're experiencing anxiety and depression, meditation can be hugely, hugely helpful to some people, not all people. People who are processing trauma or body trauma, meditation in that respect can be a bit more complicated. But for me, meditation is amazing. It truly, truly is the most wonderful fucking gift. Because what it does is, I'm, if I'm waking in the, up in the morning and my heart is thumping, and then my heart thumps and that spins off a cycle of unnecessary worry and then a feeling of threat and a feeling of terror that lasts for most of the day, meditation is the break from that. Meditation takes your emotions down to the base level. And when they're at that base level, that's when I start using my tools of thinking to... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cope that day. So we'll have a little ocarina pause now because I want to tell you about these tools. And I don't want it to be disturbed by an ocarina pause, so we'll do it right now. Here's the ocarina. Little Spanish clay whistle. You would have had an advert there for something. Don't know what it was. It was algorithmically generated and inserted by Acast. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast this podcast is my full time job it's how I earn a living I love it I love making this podcast I had, I'm very passionate about it this podcast was a huge help to me making this every week turning up to work making something for ye receiving nice messages from ye of support I don't get to read all the messages that ye send but and, and I apologise for that if you have sent a message and I haven't written back I try and get through whatever I can but because of the size of my fucking social media the state of my fucking inbox you know it's not just well meaning people there's a huge amount of fucking spam that I have to go through to even see the genuine messages having people message me and say that the podcast that I'm making is helping ye through your journey in quarantine that's fucking lovely you know, I wake up with, if I'm waking up with a feeling of fucking terror and then I check my fucking Instagram DMs 
and someone is just saying thanks for this week's podcast I was feeling low and this helped me that's that's really healing to me it gives me a sense of purpose that's really really healing so thank you to anyone who's expressed that to me I really do appreciate it even if I don't get to respond to a lot of them but I love making the podcast and it's my full time job and it's how I earn a living and also this is an independent podcast alright I make this myself I'm not making it for a radio company for a newspaper none of that shit no advertiser tells me what to do this is an independent fucking podcast and it's paid for and supported by the listener via the Patreon page so if you're enjoying the podcast and you like it just please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing if you met me in real life would you buy me a pint or a cup of coffee maybe not a pint right now when I'm off the drink but a cup of coffee would you go here's a cup of coffee blind boy I liked last week's podcast well that's what I'm asking for one cup of coffee once a month you get four podcasts and if you can't afford it don't worry about it that's fine you can listen for free So if you can afford it, you're paying for your own podcast, you're paying for someone else who can't afford it. I earn a living. It's a wonderful model that's based on kindness and soundness. And it means the world to me. For the first time in my career, I have a sense of stability. I can plan things out. And also as well, in the context of mental health, i got to give you thanks for that. The, The sense of not having to worry about paying my bills and shit like that because of the Patreon that's been a massive help to me in in how I cope because the pandemic got rid of the live the live industry and I used to do a lot of gigs but now I've completely reevaluated that when I come out of this pandemic I won't be relying upon gigs the way I used to not at all be like fuck it I've got a Patreon I don't need to gig as much so thank you very much for that uh, also share the podcast and like it and leave a review that stuff's really important tell a friend about it because the podcast space is changing. It's starting to become dominated by very large brands who have advertising budgets and small independent podcasts, not just mine. Small independent podcasts are getting pushed out of the space a little bit. So if you're passionate about a podcast because the person who makes it is passionate about it, then you can repay that by simply fucking prosatilizing the podcast, advocating it, telling people about it leaving reviews and liking the podcast and subscribing those are genuinely helpful things that you can do for any independent podcast that you'd like listening to genuinely helpful things um, so catch me on Twitch I'm on Twitch once a week twitch.tv forward slash the blind blind by podcast and on Twitch I make music once a week which is wonderful fun unbelievable crack Thursday nights at 8.30 yurt so I spoke before the ocarina pause about The importance of meditation. Meditation. I haven't been using mindfulness. I've been the opposite of mindful. Mindfulness is a continual thing you do throughout your day. Where you just try and focus. You mindfully focus on whatever it is you're doing. The opposite of mindfulness is to be in a state of worry. When you're in a state of worry. Your anxiety is high. And you're thinking about things that might happen or things that have happened in the past and it can be very stressful and you'll notice loads like an hour can pass. Like I've got a Fitbit, a little watch in my hand and when 
I could I could tell the days when my anxiety was at its worst over the past three months because by about 12, 12 o'clock in the day or 1pm my Fitbit would go off and would tell me I've just done 10,000 steps and I'm like 10,000 steps? I haven't left the house so I was doing 10,000 steps by 1pm just by pacing around my gaff being so engrossed in fear and worry and sadness that I'm just walking back and forth, walking back and forth, lost in thoughts, lost in, in worrisome thoughts and not even aware that I'm walking, not even knowing it until this device on my hand tells me you're after walking 10,000 steps before 1pm in the day from worry pacing. That there is the opposite of mindfulness. If I was mindful I'd be aware that I was walking and I'm not. I'm on a different planet, planet worry. But I wasn't very mindful because in order to be mindful throughout your day, you kind of have to be in a, in a place of mental health already. You need to be kind of mentally healthy and doing okay. And once you're there, then you can start mindfully eating your food or mindfully washing the dishes or mindfully tidying up. I'm not there. But what I was doing was meditating. 10 minutes. I use an app called Headspace. Um, Headspace is a very... I'm not sponsored by them or anything. Headspace is just a brilliant meditation app. Alright. I think there's free versions of it out there. Just a 10 minute mindfulness meditation. And what that entails is... Sitting down. Eyes closed. Counting... The only thing I'm aware of is my breaths. Counting one to four. My breathing slows down to a snail's pace and I also become mentally aware of every part of my body. I ground myself, that's known as. My eyes are closed, I'm breathing slowly and I'm thinking about the top of my head, my shoulders, my legs. I feel myself stuck to the ground with my feet and I'm doing a body scan and usually with the body scan what this allows me to do is to identify parts of my body where tension or anger or worry exists. So when I'm scanning my body, I usually... It, I'm, it's so silent that I can now recognise just where my heart is, there's a tight tingling. A little uncomfortable tight tingle where my heart is. And that's anxiety. And then I notice my fists are clenched. And that's anger. And I notice my jaw is clenched. And that's anger and tension. And like I mentioned there, walking around the house pacing with worry and not knowing that I'm walking. It's the same with your emotions when you're not mindful of emotions. You're carrying anxiety in the top of your belly or your chest or you're carrying anger in your fists or in your jaw and you're not aware of these things at all. And the reason I'm not aware of them is the stress horm hormones in my body are kicking in. I spoke a little bit about this with Sabina Brennan, Dr. Sabina Brennan, a couple of podcasts back. When I'm in a state of anxiety, the part of my brain that thinks critically that evaluates things, that thinks about things such as my fists being clenched, that part of my brain isn't being engaged. 
the only part of my brain that's been engaged is the one that interprets threat and fear and that overestimates threat and fear. So I would meditate for 10 minutes to get back into my body and to get to a base level, to self-regulate, to regulate to a base level of calm. And what meditation does for my brain is when I said there that when I'm in anxiety, the part of my brain that's concerned only with running away or fighting or freezing, that bit of my brain gets to relax now. That bit of my brain, there's no more activity there anymore. And now I've opened up the rest of my brain. The part of my brain that can be calm and can think about how I'm feeling and can, that can rationally interpret threats and whether these threats are real or not. Meditation allows me to go there. So after I'd meditate and I'm in this state of calm, that's when I look at my checklist. And I had a checklist of 12 points. And these are 12 thinking errors they're known as. And this comes from cognitive psychology. So these are errors in how I'm thinking about myself, how I'm thinking about my life and how I'm thinking about other people. And if I can take yes to these errors and this is and if I'm thinking in this harmful, unhelpful way, then I'm going to get panic attacks. I'm going to get panic attacks and depression. So I need to spot these errors and stop them in their tracks. And you can do this too. And I do it with a piece of paper. And I'd recommend that. When you are doing an exercise like this, use a piece of paper and write shit down. Because when you write it down, it leaves your head. When you're in a state of worry, it's like you're holding thoughts up. Like they're weights. It's like you're holding thoughts in your head. And they're stressing you and putting strain on you and you can't properly see the thoughts but when you write them down on a piece of paper in front of you then you're, you're taking that weight off the thoughts are now words on a page that you can assess and critique and challenge so the first question I ask myself am I jumping to the worst possible conclusion am I jumping to the worst possible conclusion whatever it is that's worrying you that has you feeling anxious these thoughts or fantasies am I jumping to the worst possible conclusion the answer is fucking yes 100% so for me what would be the, the sp- so a big trigger for me the specific worries when I'm waking up with my heart thumping for me personally the specific worries that I have they're about my career my career right so The thing is with this pandemic for me in my industry, I work in the entertainment industry. I've just gone nearly a year and a half without working in television or anything mainstream like that. Now before this pandemic I had a fucking BBC series, I had a book, all this stuff. So spending a year and a half away from that in my career can be very dodgy. Because the industry forgets about you very quickly. So because of reasons outside of my control. I'm someone who hasn't worked in the mainstream space in a year and a half. So I do have reason to be. To be concerned that once the pandemic is over. Do TV companies want to work with me again? 
that's a real, that's a genuine thing to be concerned about. But when I'm in a state of anxiety, am I jumping to the worst possible conclusion? Absolutely. Because in my mind, I'm saying no TV company is even going to speak to me. They're just going to go, that fella, I haven't seen him make TV since 2019. Who the fuck is he? He's passed it. He's spent. He's done. We've moved on from that. And then I'm fantasizing about not having any work and for everything I've worked towards my entire career just to be over and gone and done. And then I'm pacing around my gaff, terrified, utterly fucking terrified. And when you're in that state of anxiety, your brain will not let in any information that contradicts the worry. That's very important. Your brain won't let in the rational thoughts. So what do I do? I've written down on the piece of paper, am I jumping to the worst possible conclusion? Yes, I am. I write down what those worst possible conclusions are. And now because I'm calm, I've just meditated and I have it on a piece of paper. I start writing down some rational responses. Am I never going to get another job again? I don't know. It's, I, I honestly don't know. And I've always existed in an industry that's really uncertain and fickle. I don't know. I'll tell you what I do know. I can try. I can definitely fucking try. And I've proven to myself that I have the talent to try. And then I say to myself, what if I'm right? What if I'm right and I come out of this pandemic and I can't get a job in TV? Or my career is ended by this pandemic? What if that happens? I'll do something else. I'll find a different job. I'll find something else that I like doing. And it'll be absolutely fine. That would be my new thing that I do. And then I come to the realisation... Ah, here's the problem. You've allowed your job to define your self-worth. Why should I be utterly terrified of not having a career in entertainment? Why should that utterly terrify me when I can definitely go and get a different job in something else? Why would I be terrified of that? The terror isn't you won't have a job, you won't be able to work. That's not the terror. The terror is I've allowed my sense of self-esteem and worth to depend upon working in the entertainment industry. So it's not about earning a living. It's not about paying the bills. It's about I only have personal worth when I am blind by the person who's on TV and writes books. And that's harsh shit. That's not personal worth. My work is nothing but an aspect of my behaviour. But it doesn't define my worth as a human being. So now I've written this down, I've challenged the, the, the thinking error and now how do I feel? I'm feeling a little bit normal again. I'm now not worrying about my fucking career because I'm looking at it rationally. I'm going, this isn't in my fucking control. Why am I worrying about whether a fucking TV company wants to talk to me in six months time? The fuck am I worrying about? That's not in my control. That's none of my business. None of my business. I need to worry about what's happening right now. And right now I'm actually grand. My heart isn't thumping. I'm feeling a bit happier. And I'm ready to move on to the second thinking error. Am I thinking in extreme, all or nothing terms? Black and white thinking. Yes, I am. Absolutely, I'm thinking in utter extremes. When I'm in a state of anxiety and worry, the thought that my career might be under threat creates 
a feeling of absolute blind terror that the world will crumble and I will be worthless and nothing and I will never experience happiness and everything will be utterly terrible. And why am I thinking these things when I'm in a state of anxiety? Because my brain is in fight or flight mode. It doesn't want to think rationally. It doesn't want nuance. It doesn't want extra information. It wants to either fight or run away. And in that situation, very extreme thinking is useful. But there's no actual threat that requires it. It's just worry. So I just write down, I've been in situations before where I thought my career was ending. In fucking 2015, I thought that was it. I was done with entertainment. I went back to college and did a fucking master's degree. It was wonderful. I had a great time. Didn't give a fuck. So why am I, why am I assuming that if, if, if it was to happen again, that it would be this terrible, awful thing? I've already done it. I had a great time. Then I move on to thinking error number three. Am I using words like always and never to draw generalised conclusions from a specific event? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. So what that thinking error means there is when we're in a state of worry, the words that we use in our own head when we're fantasising about the worry, the thing that it is. So for me, like I said, it's, it's my career. For you, it could be, I know a lot of people are worried about people who are single, are worried that they're not meeting people, they're not dating during this pandemic. You're worried that you'll never meet someone. You'll worry that once I get out of this pandemic, I'm going to be too old. Nobody will like me. I'm never going to meet the right person. What if the right, what if I was supposed to meet the right person this year and I didn't do it? because of this fucking pandemic and now they're with someone else and I will never meet someone who makes me happy. The words that we use when we think about whatever it is we're worrying about, if those words are very extreme and absolute and black and white, then chances are we're going we're gonna to ramp ourselves up more into anxiety. So for me, it's like, I'm going to come out of this pandemic and the TV companies will definitely have forgotten about me and they'll never want to work with me and that's it, I'll be damaged goods and I'm fucked and I'm done, they'll never work with me again. So you simply write those things down, you replace the nevers and the always with maybes, what ifs, what's the worst that can happen, things like that. I'm feeling calm and now I've looked at three thinking errors and I'm ready to move on to the fucking fourth and the fourth one is am I predicting the future instead of waiting to see what happens of course I am yes definitely that's all I'm doing I'm here in fucking January February 2021 and I'm thinking about 2022 my mind and body is in 2022 and I'm experiencing deep intense anxiety because of imaginary conversations that I'm having happening with TV executives that I don't know who don't exist who I haven't met yet and I'm in my kitchen racking up 10,000 steps on my fucking Fitbit as if I'm sitting in a fucking a TV boardroom in London with my idea being rejected and being kicked out of London the entirety 
of the anxiety that I'm experiencing is not caused by what's happening now, but a fantasy of what hasn't happened yet or what may never happen in fucking six months time. And this is ruining my life right now. Sure, that's absolutely ridiculous. I can't live my life like that. Why would I possibly allow myself to get deeply upset over a fucking fantasy that hasn't happened yet or may not happen in six months time or a year? What the fuck is that? So I write these things down. I write these things down and I've just challenged another thought. Number five. Am I jumping to conclusions about what other people are thinking of me? Yes, I am. So just just to, in terms of my my specific worry about my career, we've already we've already said there that I'm I'm worrying about a fantasy argument with a TV commissioner I've never met who may not exist. Am I jumping to conclusions about what other people think of me? Yes, because I've decided in my mind that this imaginary TV commissioner is saying, "Blind boy, I haven't seen him on TV since 2019. He's a washed up has been." Like, but I'm treating it as if it's real, as if someone's saying that to me right now. But even to take it away from that, when you're thinking like this and you're trapped in the cycle of worry, what that also does is it it greatly reduces your sense of self-esteem and self-worth. Okay? Because that's not a pleasant, that's, you're beating yourself up all day and I'm beating myself up all day when I'm doing this. So my self-worth is down So what do we do when our self-worth is down? We try and seek approval from other people. We try and seek approval for other people. So what I might do is I'm feeling really insecure. So I text a friend. I text a friend and I say, what's the crack? How are you getting on? How are you getting on? And they don't text back. They don't text back for maybe a day or two. Now, because my self-esteem is low, because I'm doing nothing but whipping myself all day, when they don't text back, what am I saying to myself? Of course they're not texting back. I'm a piece of shit. I'm probably just fucking annoying them by texting. Why would they text me back? They don't give a fuck about me. Of course they're not texting back. Fuck it, man. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed that I even texted them to ask them how they were. And am I taking into account that there's a pandemic and they might have some shit going on? Or am I taking into account that I might have texted them when they were in the middle of a fucking Zoom call because they're working from home and they saw my text and then forgot about it? Am I taking into account that they have a newborn fucking child and might be mad busy? No, not at all. I've decided in my mind that this person thinks that I'm a piece of shit who's not worth texting back. And I'm running with that as if it's fucking real. And then I'm coming away from it with even lower self-esteem. So what do I do? I challenge it. I challenge it on paper. And I look at all the different alternatives. And I might even make a choice to say, they haven't texted me back in two days. Depending on my relationship with the person, I could leave it. I could leave it and go, fuck it, they forgot about it. Or I could reach out for a second time and make genuine human contact and say, what's the crack, man? I texted you two days ago, you didn't text back. 
Are you doing okay? Are you feeling all right? Do you want to chat? And that's not confrontational. You're not saying to the person, why didn't you text me back? You're compassionately saying, I noticed you didn't text me back. Are you okay? Do you know what I mean? And that's, that's com- you build self-esteem through an act of compassion like that. That's an act of caring. You didn't text me back and I'm interpreting that as are you okay rather than you think I'm a piece of shit. Empathy and compassion can be fantastic haters in situations like this and that's another one of the shitty things about the fucking pandemic. You know, you're not meeting a lot of people or speaking to them. Number six, am I focusing only on the negative information and overlooking the positive information. Yes, I am. I have made a decision that my career is over with no evidence. And what I haven't looked at is that I've learned a shit ton of new skills during this pandemic. I started live streaming. I got better at doing this podcast. I've put myself into a situation where I don't really... I don't require gigs. I've shown myself that I don't require gigs. Like when this pandemic started, lads, the fuck do you think I was saying to myself? Oh no, there's no gigs. I'm going to be fucked. I'm going to be out on the street. That's not what happened. I coped on a day-to-day basis and I learned a lot of new skills and had a lot of crack. What, what thing are you doing in your life where you're focusing only on the negative and not looking at the positive? Let's take it back to the person who is single during the pandemic and they're not able to go to bars and meet people or make connections and they're worried about I'm never going to meet someone it's going to be too late I'm too old what about the fact that you've had a year a year to learn more about yourself a year to grow as a human being a year to be a different person maybe the year that you had to spend a lot of time on your own to explore who you are maybe that means that when you get to go out there into real life dating country again you're going to be attracted to different people that are better suited to you because you've had that year to mature and grow you know and I'm giving that example there because I get a lot of DMs and this is the, this is a specific worry that a lot of people have. I get a lot of DMs from people who are single and they're going, blind boy, I'm fucking terrified. I'm looking for a partner and I can't do it during this, during this fucking pandemic. Can you speak about this? Number seven. Am I discounting positive information or twisting a positive into a negative? Yes, I am. So in my situation, if I'm thinking I'm not going to get any work after this pandemic. But what if I do? What if I do get work? It's been so long since I've worked in television that I've probably lost my ability to create. So I won't even let myself in that situation to even entertain a positive. Even when I try and say to myself, it might be okay. I'm trying to find a way to twist that okay and catastrophize it into why it's definitely going to be fucking terrible. So I definitely don't need that way of thinking in my life. So I write it down, I challenge it, and I think of alternatives that are more flexible and rational. Number eight. Am I globally putting myself down as a failure, worthless, or useless? 
absolutely. I'm taking the fact that a pandemic has stopped me from being able to do my job and then blaming myself for it. And this will be one that you relate to if you if you work in any of the industries that have been really shut down because of coronavirus, if you work in restaurants, if you work in fucking entertainment, if you're a personal trainer in a gym, and this career, or this fucking pandemic has essentially made you unemployed for the past year, how much of that are you blaming yourself? You know? Like, the, the, none of us chose this. If you haven't worked in a fucking year and haven't been able to pursue the thing that you like doing and your your job that you like doing, if you haven't had the opportunity to do that, it's okay to be upset about it. But just because it's upsetting doesn't mean that it's our fault. It's not our fucking fault. Jesus Christ. Number nine. Am I listening too much to my negative gut feelings instead of looking at the objective facts? Now that's a really important one in situations like this. When you find yourself in a loop of worry and anxiety or sadness or depression, when you find yourself in these things, you intensely fear or or intensely feel the feeling of terror. Like this is one that starts off, like I say, I wake up in the morning and the first thing I wake up to is a feeling of fear, terror and doom. And this is the, when I open my eyes, this is the first feeling. And there's no thoughts there, it's the first feeling. And you all know that, waking up with that sense of doom and terror. And the first thing my brain does is try and justify it. So the emotion there is leading the thought. I feel terror Therefore, there must be a legitimate reason for it. And that's usually when the cycle starts in a day for me. Just because we're experiencing a feeling of fear or a feeling of worry or a feeling of sadness doesn't mean that there's an actual reason for it to exist. And that emotion will push our brain towards finding the reason to fit in there to validate that negative emotion. So I wake up lovely fucking day I have the day ahead of me to do whatever I want within reason I have the day ahead of me to be productive to do something with meaning I have the day ahead of me to decide how my day is going to be within reason because it's a pandemic but I I have a choice but instead I wake up with a feeling of fucking terror and it's like oh no the terror the terror And then my brain goes, yeah, of course, you're fucked. You're fucked. Your career's over. You're fucked. That's what the terror is about. You feel terror because your career is over and you're fucked. And you're you're never going to work again. And and you're you're really fucked. And then I go, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. And then then I'm pacing around my fucking kitchen. And at 1pm, I get a notice on my Fitbit to say that I've done 10,000 fucking steps of worry pacing in my kitchen. So that one there is really important and and that's where emotional awareness comes into it. Just because you feel a negative emotion 
doesn't mean that you have to find a thought that validates it. That one right there is when you have to start treating your anxiety like a bully. Sometimes it helps to treat anxiety like a bully. Some little pattern in your brain there created an emotion of fear or emotion, an emotion of sadness and then your brain agrees with it. Your thoughts start to agree with that feeling. Like if you're being picked on by someone and they really know how to get to you and they're being really nasty and mean and when they pick on you and say that mean thing to you the moment you agree with them and say yeah they're fucking right now you're being bullied now that's when it feels terrible but instead when you turn around and go that's not true that horrible thing you said about me that's not fucking true I'm not having that sometimes you speak to your anxiety like that you get that terror you get that sadness and you go no who the fuck are you who the fuck are you to wake me up with a feeling of terror and there's no there's no evidence for it the evidence doesn't exist you just want me want me to feel afraid when I wake up in the morning about what something happening in six months fucking time fuck off who the fuck are you that's speaking to your anxiety like a bully and that that technique works really really well there when the emotion comes in and it informs your thought process that's when the thought process fights back and says you're not real you're just a fire alarm making a lot of noise but you're not a fire there's no fucking fire you're just a fire alarm or you're my neighbour like sometimes my neighbour's house alarm wakes me up sometimes my neighbour's house alarm goes off and it wakes me up and it's not pleasant but do you honestly think I say to myself oh they're getting robbed next door I'm fucked I don't I go the neighbour's house alarm has gone off for no reason again and I move on with my day well when I wake up with a feeling of terror or if you wake up with a feeling of terror or a feeling of sadness your sadness alarm has gone off or your anxiety alarm has gone off but there's no fucking reason for it you don't need to rationalise why it exists. Number 10. Am I taking an event or someone's behaviour too personally or blaming myself and overlooking other factors? Personalising that's known as. And that's a very common error in thinking. That one is much more associated with depression more so than anxiety. That can be... That was one of my issues with Twitter. One of the reasons I had to come off Twitter and I've been using Twitter for years and I've never had it really fuck up my... I've never had it infiltrate my emotional boundaries the way that it has the past few months because I'm run down and my self-esteem is low. So I would go onto Twitter and I might see two strangers fighting because Twitter is where people have fights and Twitter is where people... Twitter is where people have fights and where people compete to have the best complaint to get points and it's an excessively negative place where you have people fighting with each other or you have people speaking about something terrible that happened to them or you have someone just talking about how shit everything is and I would sometimes look at Twitter and find a way to blame myself so I'd see two people fighting and it's hard to explain 
but I would feel as if I was involved in their argument or somehow caused it. But all I know is I, f- I feel like I'm right there in a pub with two people fucking fighting and something I did caused this and they're two strangers in America and I haven't a fucking clue who they are and this is nothing to do with me. But what that is right there is personalising. Sometimes we can do it with news events. Something terrible happens on the news and somehow we feel guilt or shame around a thing that has fucking nothing to do with us. But we still feel it as real. So you got to write down the emotions that you feel and you got to challenge why am I feeling upset over something that's completely outside of my control that has fucking nothing to do with me? Is this a healthy way to look at this situation? Are there alternative ways that I can still allow myself to be upset by an upsetting thing that I saw but to be able to separate that upset from a sense of personal shame or personal blame? Number 11. Am I using words like should, must or ought and have to in order to make rigid rules about myself, the world or other people? So that there is... Sometimes we have rules about how other people should treat us. And often those rules aren't very realistic. And also the other people don't know your personal rules about how you're supposed to be treated. So let's give another example. Earlier, I mentioned, what if you texted your friend... You're feeling insecure, so you text your friend to say, how are you getting on? And they don't text back. Now, I went for, they're not texting me back because I'm not worth texting back. So I internalised that as a kind of a a shame, I suppose, or or low self-esteem. But what if you have a rigid demand? What if your friend doesn't text you back? And instead of thinking, they didn't text me back because I'm not worthy of a text back. You say, how fucking dare they not text me back? How dare they fucking ignore me? Who the fuck do they think they are? That they can't text me back? Who the fuck do they think they are? And now you're fuming. Now you're utterly fuming because your friend hasn't texted you back. And it's the same shit because the emotion of anger has now taken over you're not entertaining or considering the many rational possibilities as to why they haven't texted you back they have broken your personal rule and your personal rule is when you text someone they must text you back you can't have that rule that's not reality people are entitled to not text you back people are entitled to be stuck in the middle of a zoom call People are entitled to be busy with their fucking kids. People are entitled to just not feel like texting you back because they have other shit going on. That's life. And if you have a rigid demand about how people must treat you, then you will live a life where you're continually hurt by other people. Hurt and disappointed by other people. And they might not even know they're doing it the rules that we have about how we should be treated are our rules we don't tell them to other people 
and if someone isn't aware of your personal rule that you must be texted back immediately, that's a lot of hurt that you've just created for yourself that shouldn't need to exist. So what do you do? You take the shoulds and the musts and you move to something more flexible and realistic. It's okay to want to be texted back. It's okay to text your buddy. And if they don't text you back after two days, it's okay to be a little bit annoyed about that. Because it's also fair to call it a bit rude. But the person may not be being rude. They might have shit going on. So you just move the should and the must and the rigid stuff to something more flexible. And instead of saying... They should have texted me back, the fucking rude cunt. Who do they think they are? How dare they treat me like this? Who do they think I am that that they can walk all over me like this? You don't go that way, you go. It would have been nice. I would have preferred if they'd have texted me back. I have a preference for that. And it does feel a little bit rude. Maybe I need to chat with them. But fuck it, there could be other things going on with them too. But if they don't want to text me back... I'm just going to get on with my day. I'm going to get on with my day because look at how much time I've just wasted fantasising about having an argument with them. Fantasising about telling them about how they're supposed to text me back. And if you've ever gotten into that situation, which people do, and you've allowed yourself to completely convince yourself that the person has wronged you and hurt you, and then you go and do something about it, Then you text them back and you go, the fuck, what's the fucking story? Why didn't you text me back? I texted you yesterday. And then the person texts back and goes, really, really sorry. I was feeding my child. I'm so sorry about that. Are you doing okay? And then you feel like a dickhead. You're fucking mortified and you look like a dickhead as well. And you've just attacked your friend for no reason. So... That's number 11. Am I using shoulds, musts and ought and have to in order to make rigid rules about myself, the world and other people? If you're thinking that way, that's how a mentally unhealthy person thinks. And then the final one, number 12. Am I telling myself that something is too difficult or unbearable or that I can't stand it when actually it's hard to bear but it is bearable and worth tolerating? So that's going to speak to all of us with this pandemic. I don't struggle with that one, thank fuck. That's one of the ones on the entire list, I think, that I wouldn't immediately take yes on. Um, that's when I say every day all the only demand I make of myself is to cope. The reason I do that... I can't allow myself get into a state of thinking whereby I say I can't handle this. This is unbearable. I can't do it. I can't stand it. The fact that I can't go to the gym or socialise or all the shit that we're struggling with right now. It's outside of my control. It's completely out. I have no control over a global pandemic. None. I have no control over lockdown. So because I identify and recognise that these things are outside of my control, I take ownership of the fact that the only thing that is in my control is how I react to it. And that's what coping is. I don't allow myself to say that something is unbearable. What I say instead is, I'm be- I, it is bearable. 
It's not fucking pleasant. It's deeply unpleasant. I don't like this one bit. But there's nothing I can do about it. So I can either get deeply, deeply upset about something I can't control or I can have a flexible attitude and be chilled out about the thing I can't control. But in both of those options, I can't change the circumstances. I can only change how I react to the circumstances. Now I'm kind of okay with that shit when it's in the here and now. And that's something I've had to really develop a part of my job. Like writing a book for instance. Like literally starting off with nothing and then having to get 70,000 words of fiction. Every day that requires me to say to myself this is difficult and I have to cope with it and I have to bear it. Because if I tell myself it's unbearable I won't write a book. So the reason, yeah, that's an integral part of how I do my job. So that's why I don't particularly get triggered by that one. But what I would get triggered by is, so am I telling myself that something is too difficult or unbearable and I can't stand it? No, but I will underestimate my ability to cope in the future, which is, which is like a similar enough thing to that. So if I'm catastrophizing in my head and thinking... In six months time things are going to be fucking awful and terrible and I won't be able to work. In six months time things will be awful. At no point in that prediction am I factoring in my capacity to cope. And that's really important. Whenever you worry about an event in the future that hasn't happened you never factor in. Like when you're in a state of anxiety you never factor in when this terrible if this terrible thing happens I'm not just going to lie down and allow the terrible thing to happen when have I ever done that if a bad thing happens to me in the future I'm going to work with it as it happens I'm going to cope in the moment but when you're catastrophizing and thinking about how something's going to be terrible you never factor in your your capacity to cope you always visualize visualize yourself as a completely helpless victim who is going to be devoured by this future terrible fear and that's just not reality if I did find myself in a situation in six months where I can't where I can't do the things in my career that I could do two years ago I'm going to fight it I'm going to be flexible and I'm going to no I'm going to try my best I'm going to try my best like I always do. Just like when this pandemic started it's like oh my god there's no gigs I can't do gigs I can't do tours oh no what am I going to do? I fucking picked up live streaming I picked I learned how to do a completely new discipline and focused on this podcast so an absolutely terrible thing did happen my entire industry fell apart and I coped I did the best that I could in it and I'm grand and that's the same with all of us so that there is my that's my fucking 12 step crisis response that's my 12 step crisis response it's a very simple checklist that I would do every single day while my mental health has been very bad 
and that has kept me from having a bad panic attack or bad depression and instead it's still been shit it's been unpleasant but like I said I'm getting up in the mornings I'm going about my day I'm making dinners I'm doing the best I can I I would not be in that situation if I didn't have these techniques if I didn't have this approach I'd be in a very bad way a very very I would not be coping I wouldn't be coping that's the only thing I can say so I meditate for 10 minutes I meditate so that I can get my emotions to a base level because I couldn't do that checklist while I was in the throes of anxiety that would make it a bit more difficult I meditate to get myself to that calm base level then I take out the sheet of paper and this checklist and I run through them all really quickly am I jumping to the worst possible conclusion Am I thinking in extreme all or nothing terms? Am I using words like always and never to to draw generalised conclusions from a specific event? Am I predicting the future instead of waiting to see what happens? Am I jumping to conclusions about what other people are thinking about me? Am I focusing on the negatives and overlooking the positives? Am I discounting positive information or twisting a positive into a negative? Am I globally putting myself down as a failure, worthless or useless? Am I listening too much to my negative gut feelings instead of looking at the objective facts? Am I taking an event or someone's behaviour too personally or blaming myself and overlooking other factors? Am I using words like should, must and ought in order to make rigid rules about myself, the world or other people? And finally, am I telling myself that something is too difficult or unbearable? I can't stand it. When actually, it's hard to bear, but is bearable and worth tolerating. So the 12 of those. Little checklist. That's that's a fucking strong mental health toolkit that anyone can have access to and should be taught in schools. And I hope they are teaching things like that in schools. Alright, I'll catch you next week. I don't know. That was fucking an hour and a half, man. That was an hour and a half. I haven't done an hour and a half in a while. I hope that was... That was very helpful to me. And I hope it was helpful to you. A lot of that stuff, I'm sure you've heard it in previous podcasts I've done. It's cognitive psychology. Which I've covered a few times. But... I'm continually getting new listeners. And I think with shit like that doesn't matter if I'm repeating myself when it comes to information like that that's so fucking healing and helpful fuck me do you know what I mean alright your dog bless talk to you next week Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 